0: In chapter 5, although it started off talking about the tribulation period, it segued into our relationship with the Lord in the here and now and how we're to walk with him. So let's open up in prayer, please. Father in heaven, we approach your word with respect for your word and love for you, and we ask that by your written word you'd transfer the living word into our consciousness that we would be conscious of your presence that you, Jesus, as the living word would fill our hearts as we're studying your written word, that you'd allow us to adjust our behavior and change our uh, outlook on life according to your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We talked about the various costs of discipleship and the rewards of discipleship and what God says about discipleship Uh, in in verses chapter 5 verses 8 through 11 he briefly talks about the life of discipleship 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 remember he had just got done saying that we are children of light, children of the day we're not going to be part of the tribulation that says that day is not gonna come upon us as a thief in the night because we're gonna be with him he says in verse eight but let us who are of the day he's still carrying that idea be sober putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of salvation for god has not appointed us to wrath but in, in contrast, <clears throat> to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, whether we're alive or dead, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also you do. So we've, I've got a bunch of that underscored in, in my text, and <clears throat> I want to examine it point by point. You see, we tend to distance ourselves from the reality of the Christian life. We spend time imagining how the believers in Jesus' time might have responded to hearing his word, how the believers in the period of the acts of the apostles might have responded to, to the living faith of the apostles who were right in front of them. Well, we didn't live then. We live now. We need to apply God's word today. <coughs> There's nothing wrong with remembering those circumstances and remembering that their circumstances were much harsher than ours. We get worried about what our government doing was doing and what the Canadian government's doing and what the Soviet government's doing, etcetera, etcetera. There's nobody on this planet that's doing as bad as Nero was doing in Rome at the time when Paul wrote Romans 13 talking about submitting yourselves to civil authority. Just keep that in mind. Go back and read it. He says, to subject yourself to every law of man for the Lord's sake. Well, the law in his time was good old King Nero, the emperor. He was an evil, evil man, probably insane, too. Uh, The Christians were tortured and burned to death and so forth for the next 10 emperors. One of the queens, as I remember, one of the empresses decided it would be a good idea to put streetlights on the Appian Way. Well, they didn't have electricity back then. They didn't have gas. So what they did is tied up Christians on stakes, plastered them with tar, and set them on fire so they'd be burning all night. How's that? Yeah, you know, We don't have a whole lot to concern ourselves with right now. The tribulation is going to go back to the full evil of of unleashed satan but we're not there we do need to learn how to apply these truths today not just imagining how they might have lived at that time 2000 years ago so the first command here he says but let us who are of the day be sober on our lives we think sober is the opposite of drunk no, the, to look at something soberly means to, to think seriously to take it to see reality as it, as it really is <clears throat> Means to take the Christian life seriously not as a weekend entertainment or social gymnastics or Gamemanship where we try to position ourselves to, to appear more pious than the guy next door It's not okay. You see it comes down to a, a, an unspoken statement, though I'm more humble than you are. That, anybody see a contrast there? How can you be proud about humility? See, it's, a, it's a contradiction in concepts. If you're trying to hold yourself up as being a better Christian than somebody else, automatically you've lost the game. Holding yourself up is the opposite of what Jesus calls us to do. <clears throat> and he says for us to be sober, in Romans chapter twelve verse three, he says, "For I say," it's the same writer, Paul talking. He says, "For I say, through the grace given unto me, that every man that is among you, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God has dwelt has dealt to every man the measure of faith." <clears throat> This is the same writer, Paul. He's using the same terminology, but in the Romans passage he gives us a little bit of explanation as to what it means. It means to see the world through honest eyes, to look at ourselves through honest eyes. Some of you may have in the old days been at a carnival where they had a I don't know what they call it, a fun house, I think, where you'd go in and they have all these warped mirrors. You know, you walk in and in the first mirror you're about four feet tall and two feet wide. And the next mirror you're all wavy in the next mirror you're tall and skinny i like that one i'd rather be tall and skinny uh but you know they they consider that an amusement thing and that's fine that's what it is we're seeing you know how funny we look in a warped mirror but if we look at ourselves through the world's eyes we are looking at a funhouse mirror we're looking in a warped mirror where god calls us to look on the mirror of his word and see ourselves as we really are in James he says, don't be like a man who looks at a mirror and walks away and immediately forgets who what he was, what kind of a person he is. And it's interesting, I, I don't want to dwell on it, but it's interesting that the word for man there is not anthropos, which is just a human, it's andros, it's a man, a male man, why? Because we do that. We look in the mirror and say, yep, and walk away and that's the end of the story. You know, a woman looks at every mirror she sees all day because she knows that the world is judging her by how, by how she looks. It's a sad truth, but it's true. I I many times got to work, and somebody look at me and kind of smirk and say, you haven't seen a mirror today, have you? And I say, uh, no. And I dressed in the dark to keep from waking up my wife, and yes, I haven't seen a mirror. Well, when I did get to see a mirror, I wasn't. Ashamed at what I saw, I was amused. You know, my shirt's buttoned wrong, or my hair is sticking out in all directions, which is not uncommon for me. Uh, but we're encouraged to look at the mirror of God's Word and see ourselves as we really are. <clears throat> so sober eyes look at reality and see reality. We don't do that funhouse mirror thing. I like the mirror downstairs in the men's bathroom; it makes me look thin. See, because I'm fooling myself. Got one of those at home, too. I don't want to look in these other mirrors. I want to see myself that way. See, that's lying to ourselves. That's not being sober. Sober eyes look at reality, and they see reality. They see themselves neither more highly nor more lowly than simple reality. Sobriety is neither overly optimistic nor is it pessimistic. It's realistic. and in light of that reality it's called to respond to light in a serious manner seeing all of life seeing all of life against the backdrop of all the suffering that the world has to offer and yet rejoicing in the ultimate victory that Jesus promised and that he secured for us at the cross he defeated all the enemies of that we have at the cross <clears throat> now the next thing paul mentions here still in verse 8 he says putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. That's armor, but he's only named two parts of it. And same writer over in Ephesians 6 lays out the whole armor of God. He says a seven-part armor of God. He says that we have the belt of truth. We're girded about with truth. What truth? Well, it's the truth of God's Word. Everything else hangs on the truth of God's Word. In uh, a Roman soldier's armor, he has this heavy leather belt. Well, his breastplate was hung from that belt by hooks. That's what held up the rest of the armor. That's where his sword scabbard was hung on and so forth. It says, stand, therefore, having on the full armor of God, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness. Whose righteousness? Mine? non-existent it's the righteousness of christ that was deposited on my account the day i trusted jesus as my savior some of you haven't caught on to that yet the day you trusted jesus as your savior all of his righteousness was deposited on your account before god and god sees you that way now and now he's living leaving it up to us to learn to live that way he already sees you as righteous <clears throat> The third thing he says, having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We know that God no longer sees us as an enemy. In Romans chapter 5, verse 10, it says that while we were yet enemies, God, Jesus died for us. Okay, And as an unbeliever, I would have said, well, I'm not an enemy. Oh, yeah, I was. I just didn't realize it. That was just who I was. I didn't realize I was an active enemy of God. But when he died for me, I was still an enemy and with the day I trusted him as my Savior I became no longer an enemy I have peace with God Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says therefore being justified it means declared righteous we already talked about that being declared righteous by faith we have present tense we have peace with God we're no longer at odds with him he no longer sees us as an enemy we're not looking over our shoulder and wondering if God's going to judge us for failing Him yet again. We have peace with God. Not always the peace of God. That's a different story. We'll talk about that a different time. The fourth thing he names is the shield of faith. I have a hard time with that one. I've had people encourage me on that level a lot over the years. Uh, I'm, I'm learning growing in that area. I'm learning to apply the shield of faith. (coughs) But he says, above all (coughs) pardon me. (coughs) He says, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the firing fiery darts of the wicked. I think some of the newer translations say extinguish all the fiery darts of the wicked. (coughs) The random evil thoughts that come in the fears and doubts that come in unbidden these are darts flaming darts from the evil one and we're to shield ourselves with faith the fifth thing he names in ephesians chapter 6 verses 13 through 19 is the helmet of salvation you protect your brain your mind with a helmet helmet of salvation is knowing that you're saved knowing from god's word that you have eternal life now that you're not waiting to find out if you made the team jesus said in john 5:24, and i've quoted it to you hundreds of times verily verily i say unto you he who hears my word and believes on him who sent me has everlasting life that's present tense shall not come into condemnation that's your future completely covered and has crossed over from death into life that's your past you're completely covered by that one promise. First John chapter five, verses eleven through thirteen, he says, This is the record that God has given unto us eternal life, and this life is in his son. He that hath the Son of God hath life. Present tense, has, has life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things I have written unto you who believe on the name of the only begotten Son of God, that you may know, not hope, not suppose, not figure it out on paper, that you may know that you have eternal life. That's what God wants you to know. The fifth, excuse me, that was the fifth thing, the helmet of salvation. The sixth item on the list is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Some of you are working hard learning to sharpen that sword, learning to use God's Word, learning to apply it in your life, learning to defend your beliefs by God's Word, learning to offer God's Word as a comfort to other people or as a solution to their problems or an answer to their questions. That's how we sharpen that sword. We learn to use it. It it doesn't do, it wouldn't do any good to hand me a a nice, high quality steel sword. A, I don't think I have the strength in my wrists anymore to hold it, and B, I don't know how to use the thing, you know? I can watch Errol Flynn movies or something and, and that looks cool, but I don't know how to do that. The people that actually practice and work at fencing, and they're only talking these little fencing foils, they learn those skills. And I had a friend that had a collection of all different kinds of swords, and he knew what they are all for and how to use them. He's dead now, but he didn't get killed with a sword either, he had a heart attack. So, <coughs> uh, he wasn't living by the sword. He was a faithful man of God, but he, he, he liked knowing about that kind of stuff, the different kinds of swords and what they were for. But this is the sword of the Spirit. It's the Word of God. Now, just as a side note, this is free. If a robber comes to you and points a gun at you and says, give me your money, you're not going to say, well, I don't believe that's a gun. Or if you do, he isn't going to take it apart and say, yeah, it's a gun. Look, it's got a hole in the end. That's where the bullets come. Let me take the magazine out and I'll show you the bullets. He ain't going to do that. He's going to pull the trigger. If somebody doesn't believe God's Word, go ahead and quote it anyway. That's what a sword does. It slices. Use it. Don't try to convince them that it's God's word. Say, well, this is what he says. You can take it or leave it. It's either true or it's not true. But your not believing it's true doesn't make it not true. And my believing it's true doesn't make it true. It has to stand on its own merit. It either is true or it isn't. I remember hearing about a guy that he got saved because this guy talking to him, the only verse he could think of and remember was, Hebrews nine twenty seven. he says, all I know is this given unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. And the guy would argue and argue and argue, and he says, well, like I told you, all I know is this given unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. And he hammered the guy so heavy with that, that the guy's defenses collapsed, because it started to concern him. He's going to die, and there's going to be a judgment. Okay. He didn't try to convince them that, yeah, it's a real bullet, a real gun, it's got bullets. No, he didn't. He just pulled the trigger. Go ahead. Use it. It's a sword. And the seventh thing he names in that list in Ephesians 6, verses 18 and 19 is prayer. That one often gets skipped when people list the parts of the armor. But he says, praying always with all prayer and supplication for all the saints. And then he goes on and makes it personal. Paul saying, and for me that utterance might be given unto me in the opening of my mouth that I might speak boldly as I ought to speak. This is Paul. This is the guy that laid the foundation for, for the whole Christian church as we know it. This is the guy that was in prison for his faith as he wrote this. And he's asking for prayer that he would have boldness to speak as he ought to speak. He might open his mouth boldly as he ought to speak. Prayer is an important part of the armor of God. Here we got a short version where he said, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. If you want the whole armor of God, go to Ephesians chapter 6 and in 2nd Corinthians chapter 10 verses 4 and 5 we find out that that armor is particularly effective he says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal not fleshly not human sourced the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds some of you have found that sin has a stronghold in your life at one point or another some people try to apply this to demons no it's not about that Demons can't live in a Christian. The Holy Spirit is there. He's He's the one that controls. The, you cannot be demon-possessed, so don't go there. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty through God. The pulling down, down of strongholds, sin does have a stronghold in everybody's life, in different areas for different people, but you can pull down that stronghold by using God's Word. He says, casting down imaginations we don't like that one either because a lot of us kind of live in our imaginary world but god says to cast down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of god bringing every thought captive to the obedience of christ now that's something you grow into you don't just hey i'm a christian now i can control all my thoughts well i don't know it didn't work that way for me i got a pretty active mind not always for better but i'm i'm there's something always going on. And God says that I can bring all that thought process under his control. He says bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's what those weapons of our warfare to do. But if you look at verse nine here, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, it says, "'For God hath not appointed us to wrath, "'but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ.'" We have a secure position in Christ. The tribulation that Paul warned about in verses 1 through 3 is surely coming. Judgment is coming. But we're not going to be part of it because our suffering, such as it is, will come before that time, and then we're going to be taken out of the world. Why? Because we're not part of the prophecy that was given in Daniel chapter 9. It's, we're com- specifically and completely left out. The whole church age is left out. And we're not part of that. So when this judgment comes that Daniel warned about, it includes Israel and it includes the world. It's back to the two groups of people that were on earth before Acts chapter 2. There was Jews and Gentiles. That was it. After Acts chapter 2, there was Jews and Gentiles in the church for the period of the church age. It'll go back to being just the Jews and Gentiles there will be a witness by Jews on earth during that tribulation. There will be 144,000 Jews, young men, that are 12,000 out of each of the 12 tribes of Israel, that are sent out as witnesses, re-evangelizing the whole world during that seven-year period. We're not going to be there. It says we're not appointed to wrath. <clears throat> we're not going to be part of that. And in contrast, it says we're appointed to obtain salvation through Christ. This is in verses 9 and 10. We who have trusted in Christ in this age are appointed to be taken out of the world, as we saw in the previous chapter. 1 Thessalonians 4 describes the rapture in detail, verses 13 through 18. And His sacrificial death for us guaranteed that we will be with Him whether we're alive or dead. And that's what it says in verses 9 here, 9 and 10. He says he 10, he says he died for us that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. And in first Thessalonians four, thirteen through eighteen, we saw how that's coming about. <clears throat> Jesus made the clear promise of this hope in there in John five twenty four that I just quoted for you. He who hears my word and believes on him who sent me has everlasting life, shall not come into condemnation, but is crossed over from death into life. But in verse 11, he says, to comfort one another. He says, wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another. Those two ideas of comfort and edification we need to talk about. Back in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 18, he says, wherefore, comfort one another. But then he says, how? He says, with these words. What words? Well, it's the explanation about the rapture. He says that, we're not all going to die and that those that have died ahead of us they're already with the lord but they're going to get their resurrected bodies just a second before our bodies are transformed if we're still alive at the rapture uh he says that we'll be with him forever and he says wherefore comfort one another with these words that's how we comfort one another we don't just pat one another on the back and say they're there you know that looks good on cartoons or on, I don't know, Father Knows Best or some other TV show, we're to comfort one another with God's Word. <clears throat> we find our comfort in the person of Christ, who's the living Word, and in the Holy Scriptures, which are the written Word. John chapter 1, verse 1, we said saw that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in verse 14, it says that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He's the living word. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4, talks about the living word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword, and able to divide between the soul and the spirit, between the bone and marrow. He, he knows the, the thoughts of the heart. He's the living word of God. And what we have here in our hand is the written word of God. It's a black and white version of Jesus. How you approach the written Word of God tells me how you're approaching Jesus. How much time you're willing to spend on the written Word of God tells me how much time you're spending with Jesus. A lady yesterday, uh, Ann and I were at a wedding yesterday, and I mean at a wedding, all day yesterday. We left the house at 8.30 in the morning, we got home at 10.30 at night. It was that kind of a wedding. It was a Chinese wedding. And one of the ladies shared there that the average Christian spends more time maintaining their car than they do maintaining their relationship with Jesus. That one hit home because yeah, we think about that a lot. You know, have I got gas in the car. Have I got oil in the car. Is the windshield clean? or the headlights clean? Is you know, if somebody looked at this today, would I be ashamed of it? There's garbage in the back seat. Okay, clean it out we spend more time worrying about our car than we do our relationship with Christ. That's, that's a pretty solid point, especially for Americans. Cars are a big part of our lives. <clears throat> but he said to comfort one another with these words, with the written word of God. We, need, we have a need for comfort, we live in a dark world. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, he says that we are to shine as lights in that darkness Holding forth the word of life, <clears throat> the light is Jesus Himself, the light of the world. Jesus in John chapter eight, verse twelve, he says, "I am the light of the world. He that cometh, in, he that followeth after me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life." That's what we're supposed to be offering to the whole world, and following Jesus is what enables us to shine in the darkness of this world. We, yeah, we're just reflecting His light, but if we're not walking with Him, then we can't reflect His light. It's that simple. <laughs> his presence as the light of the world is what gives us comfort and direction. And if we don't walk in Him, then we're in darkness. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 and 6 says... This is the message that we have heard of him and declare unto you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. If you say you're walking with him but you're walking in darkness, no, those two don't go together. He's light. John 16, 33, Jesus said, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. You to see a pattern here, of how God uses his word to comfort us, to give us peace. <clears throat> it's much easier to bear up under the load of the harsh realities of our life in this world when we know that Jesus predicted exactly that, that there's going to be some harsh realities. And that he offers us the comfort of knowing the victory is already won, that Jesus already defeated the enemy at the cross. All of our enemies were defeated at the cross. John 14, verse 27, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. That's comforting. And that was his intent. Peace. I leave with you he's getting ready to leave his disciples they didn't know what was going on why he's got to take off they wanted to be with him all the time he says no i gotta go i'll be back but peace i leave with you my peace i give unto you not as the world giveth give i unto you let not your heart be troubled neither let it be afraid the world thinks peace has to be in terms of circumstances He says, no, I'm going to give you peace that's there even in the midst of the bad circumstances. In fact, in the world you shall have tribulation. You're going to have a rough time. Things are going to be bad. I think every one of the disciples was eventually executed for his faith. The possible exception may be the the apostle John. The last we see of him, he was in exile on the island of Patmos, uh, which is still there, by the way. Uh, But some traditions say that he was taken off out of exile and executed i don't know if that's true but he's if he if he was then if he wasn't then he's the only one of the of the apostles that history doesn't tell us they were executed for their faith so yes in the world they had tribulation but be of good cheer why he didn't say i'm going to overcome the world jesus said i have overcome the world he hadn't gone to the cross yet But see, from God's perspective, because he lives outside of time and space and he wrote the whole story, it's his story, history. He can tell you the last page and say, This is what this is what I've already done here. He says, I have overcome the world. We have the additional comfort of knowing that even if we collapse under the load and just say I quit, that God's not gonna quit. How do I know? Well, I've done that for one thing. I remember driving home from work in such despair and depression, I, I called out to God and said, I can't, I can't do this anymore, I quit. And immediately the verse came to me from Philippians 1, six, being confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. God flat told me, well, that's fine, but I'm not going to quit. So it's kind of useless for you to quit. And I confessed right then, It's okay, all right, let's walk then but I need you, I can't do this on my own. Well, no, he never asked me to do it on my own. He didn't ask you to do it on your own. John chapter 6, verse 37. You see a pattern here? We're using God's word to comfort ourselves, God's word to approach peace, God's word to get answers. If you're not in the word, you're not going to have this kind of stuff. John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus said, He that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. If you come to Jesus, he is never going to toss you out. Period. And two verses later in John 6, 39, he says, This is my Father's will who gave them unto me, that of all he has given unto me I should lose none. That means not one. I should raise it up at the last day. Jesus is never going to lose a single one of his little sheep his little children, not a single one. John chapter 10, verses 27 to 28, Jesus says, "'My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, "'and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, "'and they shall never perish.'" Period. If anybody's listening to this from the United Kingdom, we say period here where you say full stop. That's the end of the story. If you belong to Jesus, you're never going to perish. So how do we enter into that relationship? Well, this will be the third time I've quoted it today, John 5, 24. He that hears my word and believes, placing their trust, they believe Jesus more than they believe everybody else or themselves. He that hears my word and believes on him who sent me, has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is crossed over from death into life. That's how we enter in. It's a done deal. It's permanent. It's eternal. <clears throat> and finally, you want to remember that in John, and excuse me, in Romans chapter eight, verses thirty-eight and thirty-nine, he says, "For I am persuaded." This is Paul talking again. "For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels." This is fallen angels, evidently. Nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature. And if you have a more modern translation, it says any other created thing. That's what a creature is, a created thing. Keep that in mind for a second. Nor any other creature can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. When people have told me, "Yeah, oh, but you can, you can walk away and leave them behind. Well, wait a minute, wait, wait a minute. Are you or are you not a created thing? And they say, well, yeah. It's okay. Then God says you can't separate yourself from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. You can't jump out of His hand. You can't rebel and walk away and leave Him behind. No, you'll feel like you did, but all you've done is left behind His blessing. You can't leave Him behind, and He isn't going to lose you. He says that no creature. That means no created thing, including all the demons, Satan himself, any imaginable physical hazard, and even you as a sinning believer. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ. Now, how is that for a foundation for comfort in Christ? See, this is what the life of discipleship entails. It means walking with Jesus and learning his words so that you're learning to live in that kind of comfort and joy every day. So how do we comfort one another? Well, the command in 1 Thessalonians 4.18 was not so much for us to comfort ourselves, but to comfort one another. The one here in First Thessalonians 5.11 is wherefore comfort yourselves together. So it's a collective thing. And he, it is to be done by the word. We're to find comfort in the written word of God and to be able to share that comfort with other believers. Uh, Randy mentioned the Wednesday night service. we got 31 people here this morning. we got 20 on Wednesday nights. I mean, it's two-thirds of you are showing up for Bible study. I talked with a guy at that wedding. He comes from a church where there's 500 people. He lives in, uh, I think he told me, Vancouver, B.C. No, 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 no. This is a different guy. Anyway, he comes from a church of 500 people, but like 25 or 30 show up for one service, 80 show up at another service, Bible study has five. One percent of their members show up for Bible study. We got two thirds showing up. I love it. Hungry people—they're feeding on God's word. So one more thing we need to look at, and I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter one, verses three through eleven. <clears throat> about that comfort, See, we typically think of comfort as being for me. If I've got a headache, I take Tylenol or Aspirin or whatever. I'm wanting to comfort me. If Ann's got a headache, I will bring her medicine if she needs me to. Uh, but, you know, we're to comfort one another. And one of the things that Ann and I observed, and, and I think uh, others observed too Wednesday night uh, Ann and I got there a few minutes late not but not late like after it started but later than we're usually there and everybody was in full voice just enjoying one another visiting talking across the tables and just big smiles everywhere everybody's enjoying one another's presence that's part of the fellowship of the saints that's partly how we comfort one another but in second corinthians chapter 1 Uh, I'm not gonna go into the full list here, but Paul lists about 13 different reasons for suffering, and all of them have to do with either comfort or learning faith. That for one, he says that we're not to see ourselves only in in the light of our own strength, that we're not gonna depend on our own ability, but depend on God. But the first thing he talks about here is comfort. He says, blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm reading verse three the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation. Paul is in prison. That we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble. This is we comfort others. How? With the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted by God. If you've had some experience with God, you've learned to walk with him, and you've been comforted by his presence and by his word, then you have the wherewithal to comfort somebody else. Remember we talked about evangelism being one beggar telling another beggar where to find free food? If you don't know where the food is yourself, you're not going to be much help. Yeah, I'm hungry too, dude. I heard there's some food around here. I don't know where. That's no help. But if you got a sandwich in your hand and you say, here, take this, they're handing them out for free right over here. Come on, I'll show you. Let's go. Then you're practicing evangelism. There's one beggar telling another beggar, beggar where to find free food. Well, that's what he says here, that we can comfort others who are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith our, we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds by Christ. Verse 5, verse 6, whether we are afflicted we, speaking of Paul and his entourage, whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. There's an old joke of why does the Oregon chicken cross the road? It was to show the possums that it could be done. <coughs> well, Paul went through all this affliction to show his fellow believers that it could be done. He didn't choose it; God chose it for him. Jesus told him in Acts chapter nine that, uh, or eight, yeah, eight, that uh, he says, "I'll show. I'm going to show him what how much suffering, how great suffering, great things he's going to suffer for me." He says if we, we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation, and our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as you are partakers of the suffering, so you also shall be of the cons- consolation." I keep wanting to say consultation. The consolation, for we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, in so much as we despaired even of life. What? Paul, the of life? Why didn't he just whip a healing on everybody or call down a miracle? Because he didn't get to do that. The miracles were not for his benefit. The healings were not for his benefit. The, every time you see a miracle in the New Testament, is for the express intent of bringing attention to the message of the Gospel. God didn't just throw them around for fun. Sure, he sometimes gives miraculous healing or, or something like that just to be a blessing. Look in the book of Ruth. Boaz only owed so much. He told his uh, what do you call his servants? He told his servants the harvesters, when you see that young lady Ruth when she comes close by, you drop some grain on purpose. Cause see the law said if they dropped grain they couldn't pick it back up. It was left for gleaners. He says I want her to go home full. So when she comes by you drop extra handfuls of grain on purpose, so she can pick it up. Don't just drop it any time. I'm after blessing her. See. And God does that in our lives. He gives us extra handfuls of blessing. It says, We have the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death, and does deliver, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. You also helping together by prayer for us, that the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons, thanks may be given by many on our behalf. See, we notice the phrase in there that says that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. If you don't learn to find your comfort in the person of Christ and his word, you won't be able to comfort others in that way. Paul gave special examples of the trauma in his own life, personal examples in his own life, and his own entourage that they experienced and the comfort they had found and the result in other people's lives. Others have been comforted and then strengthened through his experience. So finally, what does it mean when it says to edify one another in verse 11? We can easily overlook that the last command in verse 11, it says we are to edify one another. Well, edify is an almost old English word. It's, it's a word that's fallen out of use over the years. It means to build up. In fact, some of you may be familiar with the word edifice. An edifice is an old word for a building. You say, yeah, they got this great big edifice there now. They mean there's a large building there. Usually an ornate building, too, but it just means a building. We're to build one another up. That's what the word edify means. So how do we build one another up? That's what it means. We fellowship with other believers and our partnership with them. Is our partnership with them only about common interests? in the natural sense, or do we share with one another regarding the word of God and what we're learning from God? So there's a question you need to ask yourself. When I fellowship, quote, fellowship with others, does it mean that we're having coffee on donuts and just yakking our brains out about whatever, you know, the football game we just watched or about to watch, or are we fellowshipping around the person of Christ who is our comfort and our source of strength, around his word? That's what builds us up. That's what strengthens us. We read about the comforts in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. And those are the sorts of things by which we strengthen one another and build one another up and to be stronger in our faith. I've told some of you about Kristen Flummer admonishing me one time almost harshly. She was just so, so strong about it. Uh, she says, look, Chet, you've got the sword of the spirit. You use God's word. You have the helmet of salvation. You know you're saved. Your feet are shod at the preparation of the gospel of peace, but never, never, never forget the, the shield of faith because she recognized that I frequently fail in that area. Chuck, same way. He constantly reminds me, Chet, get your eyes back on Jesus. He's the one that's in charge of how things are actually going here in the church. Just not The load's not on you. The load's on him. You have the privilege of feeding the flock but he's the one who's strengthening the flock and i need that and anne constantly strengthens me by her faith and her love and her support for me and each one of us can do this for one another but if we're not feeding on the word of god ourselves we will not have much to work with when it comes to strengthening others you don't have the wherewithal to help you don't have any tools to work with god's word is our food to grow and to mature as believers. Faith in his word as a living reality is what strengthens us against the assaults of the enemy. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18 is the last verse. Anne and I were talking about this the other day. It's so one last thing for us to consider. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, it says, for our light affliction, I know you don't think your affliction is light, but if you think about the things that we just talked about that were going on in Rome in the first century, that's my afflictions are pretty light. He says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. What an odd thing to say. I never thought of glory as having weight. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, that means temporary, stuck in time, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Our sufferings, whatever they are, are temporary. It may not feel like it at the time. Uh, When I'd had gallbladder surgery, as our sister Bobby just had, uh, the Accidentally left a stone in the bile duct and the result was the bile was leaking out through all my pores Because it couldn't get out through the bile duct and I was itching frantically all over I felt like my brain was on fire and no it didn't feel very temporary Every second it felt like an eternity, but they got me back to the hospital and they stuck a tube Up my nose down my throat and back up into the bile duct pushed that stone out of the way and it was over I mean, I just—I can't imagine them even managing to do that. But that's what they did, and it was over. How long did it last? You know, a day till it took to get back into the hospital. It's it's temporary. It really is. When I had open heart surgery, that pain—it was there for a while, but it was temporary. I don't have any pain there anymore. Got a bunch of stainless steel clips holding my sternum together, but I don't have any pain. Our sufferings, whatever they are, are temporary. Life is short. Eternity is forever. Now, last week we talked about the hymnist Margaret Clarkson, who lived her entire life in severe pain due to migraines and arthritis. Her first words as a baby were, my head hurts. You think about that. Not mama, papa. Her first words were, my head hurts. But as a disciple, she saw that all the suffering was temporary. And Paul tells us to maintain that perspective and to know that, though it's beyond our understanding, the eternal weight of glory for having walked with Jesus is where we need to attach our hope. The afflictions that we endure here are minor compared to the eternal weight of glory that he's promised. Now, do I understand that? No, I don't. In fact, he said, I hath not seen nor has ear heard nor has it entered into the heart of man what god has for those has in store for those who love him no i don't know what that's going to be about it's an interesting concept the weight of glory but i can't tell you very much about it god doesn't tell us very much about it and when the disciples kept hammering about certain things about when the kingdom was going to begin he told them i'm not going to tell you it's going to be a surprise You're not going to know. Okay, so we have to accept some things that way. But we're still supposed to place our faith in what he says, not what we think. And he says that our light affliction is not worthy to be compared with the eternal weight of glory that's coming. This is the life of the disciple, of knowing how to walk with Jesus, knowing how to use it to bless those around us, and knowing that the best is yet to come. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, we'd ask that you teach us your eternal perspective on life and stir our hearts to comfort and edify one another by your word and by your grace. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going